Good morning. Please join me in prayer. The Psalms say, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Father, what a privilege it is to be called sons and daughters of God and to use our lives for your praise and your glory. The heavens declare your glory all around us, reminding us continually of your love for us. Your presence is felt through your promises, your word, and your spirit, all so amazingly provided for us. Your unconditional love for us is such a gift, your pursuit of us so vital, fulfilling your promises despite our disobedience. Father, that you would choose to become man, die for us, and be resurrected to glory, to save us, is a concept our minds struggle to grasp. Our sin is ever-present, and we fall short in so many ways. We deserve your judgment and sentence, but through Christ you offer endless grace and mercy. The incredible gift of Jesus crucified paid the eternal price of our salvation. Even so, we fail to respond in gratefulness and faithfulness as we should. Forgive us, Lord, for our shortcomings, and continue to pursue us when we fall. Lord, in this moment, we are thankful for the witness of the apostles and the sacrifices of the saints made before us, fulfilling your will to bring your gospel to the nations. We thank you for our church and a renewed missional vision to gather, grow, and go in your name into all things. We pray for our church leadership, staff, and congregation as we seek to engage in your important kingdom work through covenant. Father, in trials as well as in triumphs, many times we clearly see your redemption of the world being accomplished all around us. But often we cannot. And as we seek your intercession through prayer, we profess our trust that your ways are not our ways. And yet your will be done. Lord, we lift up the Hogwood family in the loss of Catherine's mother this weekend. Wrap your arms around their sweet family, Lord, and give them the peace only you can provide in the loss of a loved one. We pray for Alex and Maggie Halbert, Aaron and Rachel Halbert, and Sovereign Grace Church in Tegucigalpa. Bless their ongoing renovations, their call, and their congregation as their church continues to be established in Honduras. We pray for our covenant team in Honduras this weekend. Robbie, Henry, Josh, Dave Gray, Will Brook, Steve Stigler, Brad Harold, and Cy Huffman. Protect them and empower them for the sake of your kingdom work. Father, renew our minds and our hearts today as we rest and enjoy you, and in the week ahead as we seek to live out our calling in your name. Allow your Holy Spirit to guide us in grateful and faithful service in whatever we do to glorify your name forever and ever. Thank you for the privilege of being your people in an everlasting covenant. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. The world we are living in, the culture we are living in, uh, is changing rapidly. Or it certainly feels that way. At least, if you're over 50, you probably feel that change more acutely. 
if you're, say, under 20, you're actually a part of that change. You're on the front lines of it, whether you realize it or not. Uh, about two and a half, maybe three years ago, I was made aware of a situation here in our community. One of, uh, one of the students at one of our schools had uh, come out on social media, media uh, identifying themselves by a new uh, gender or sexual uh, reality. And uh, that student was met with an online uh, avalanche of praise and accolades and affirmation for being true to who uh, they are or were. And uh, one of our students actually commented on that, uh, sharing with them rather respectfully, as I recall, uh, some truth from God's word and some hope in the gospel for that person. And they were also met with an avalanche of response. Uh, but it was not praise or affirmation. It was uh, critical and hateful, actually. Uh, then about a year ago, another situation like this happened, very similar. A student uh, came out to their friend group. And again, they were met with an, an avalanche. They were bombarded with affirmation and praise and congratulations for being true to who they are. And there was another student who decided, I'm not going to wade into that. I know what I believe, but it's probably just better not to comment. And so they didn't. They remained silent. And even in their silence, they were bombarded with criticism and hate. Why aren't you more affirming for our friend who's being true to who they are? And then a few months ago, another very similar situation happened. A student uh, came out to their friend group. And then a lot of other friends in the friend group said, hey, I'm actually kind of interested in that. I think I might start uh, experimenting and exploring with my own identity. And then one of our students, again, just decided to remain quiet about this. But then they were pursued by the other students. Not just why aren't you more affirming, but why aren't you more interested in exploring who you might really be? And so the world we're living in is changing. The culture we live in as Western, American, even uh, Southern people, uh, a majority culture people, uh, is changing. And there's a tension that many of us are feeling uh, between living out a life of discipleship, living out our faith in Jesus Christ, and the surrounding culture in which we live. Now, this tension, uh, this experience is an experience that the Apostle Peter is writing into in the early 50s, late 50s, early 60s, in his uh, letter, First Peter, that we'll begin studying today. He's writing to uh, Christians who are scattered all around the Roman Empire who are beginning to experience not just tension, but actually uh, real social consequences, alienation, ostracization, if that's a word, uh, for their faith, for their discipleship. And within a few decades of Peter writing this letter, these same Christians would experience real, true suffering, uh, persecution, and even death for their faith. Now, this tension that I'm talking about might be a new experience uh, for many of us here in a majority culture here in Birmingham, the most churched city in America. But I think one of the things our text today, today in the letter of 1 Peter will encourage us to uh, chew on is that Christians should always be on some level in attention with the culture that they live in. 
This is what one author calls uh, the pilgrim principle and the indigenizing principle. Christians, as God's creation and as God's covenant people, are in one sense always at home where they are. This is God's world and we are God's people. The gospel, in some sense, is always at home in the culture. There are always things about the world we live in, the culture that human beings make for themselves that the gospel can affirm. Uh, But we're also always sojourners. We're also always pilgrims in the world because the world is fallen and broken and sinful and unrighteous. There's no ideal Christian culture to this side of eternity. So Christians are always at home and always not at home in the world in which we live. And so Peter writes to his audience and he writes to us here today, encouraging them to think of themselves increasingly that way. The phrase he will use is elect exiles. Those who have been chosen by God, and yet those who are refugees in the places where they live. Those who are at home and yet not at home. Resident aliens. Strangers in tension and conflict and even suffering in the cultures we live in which so many of us are so deeply entwined. So we just finished the gospel according to Mark on Easter Sunday, and I hope you'll remember that Mark's gospel uh, is actually Peter's eyewitness testimony. So Mark and Peter were good friends, and uh, Peter, one of the apostles who lived with Jesus, who heard his teaching firsthand, who saw him crucified and resurrected, related to Mark, what he saw, Mark wrote it down. So Mark is Peter's testimony about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we have in 1 Peter, uh, Peter, if you will, interpreting for us what it means to live in light of that reality. That Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, entered into time and history for us and for our salvation. Died on a Roman cross, was buried and raised again on the third day in glory and power. That is true. And so now Peter is writing for us, how do we live in light of that truth? And he says, we're to live as elect exiles. Now, Peter's going to get into lots of really interesting and, if I might be so bold, controversial things in his letter, like how Christians are to relate to the government, how we're to relate to one another in gender roles in our marriage. Lots of exciting stuff, but the first exhortation he gives to us in this letter comes in verse 13 of the passage we'll look at next week. He says, prepare your minds for action. This is an interesting Greek phrase. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. Put on your big boy Christian pants. Be sober-minded. Live like what you say you believe is true. This is the challenge to us of 1 Peter, to live like what we say we believe is true. And so this letter equips Christians to live in a culture in which there's tension. But it also challenges a number of us because a lot of us have never lived that way. And it's not because of some great Christian heritage we have in the West, but it's because we're living like the culture in which we live. Because there's no difference from us and those around us. Because we're not living like what we believe is true. And so in order to prepare both of those groups of people for that, Peter will start in this first passage by reminding us of what's true. 
particularly reminding us about the salvation that we have in Christ through his resurrection. And there's three elements of that we'll see in our passage this morning. He will remind us that salvation is the work of the triune God. He'll remind us that the salvation we have in Christ is already and not yet. And lastly, he'll point out to us the incredibly privileged place that we occupy in the history of God's salvation. So I invite you now to turn with me uh, to 1 Peter. You have this printed for you in your worship guide. Uh, Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the salvation of your souls, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. All flesh is like grass, and its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for your scriptures, uh, holy and inerrant and infallible, uh, who reveal to us the Lord Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man. They reveal to us the way that you have made to draw near to us. And Lord, we do pray by your spirit and word that you would draw near today, that you would soften our hearts and quicken them, that you would enable us to grab hold of uh, the things that we say we believe are true and live as though they were. And so we pray in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. So the first thing that Peter points out to us here is that the salvation we have in Christ is the work of the triune God. And you see that in verse 2. Salvation we have is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience in Christ. Salvation is the work of the triune God and you see all the members of the Trinity here in roles that they play in the work of our salvation. It begins with the foreknowledge 
of God the Father. And this word foreknowledge does not refer to uh, just an intellectual knowledge as if God somehow looked through the annals of time and he looked into the future and he saw who would believe in him and so he, he knows them. Uh, this word foreknowledge is a highly relational term. It means that God, in eternity past, in a mysterious way, looked into the future and set his affections on a people for himself. That means that God chose a people for himself in Christ. And you'll see that later in the passage next week. Peter will refer to Jesus as the one who was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And so our foreknowledge, our God's foreknowledge of us, his election of us is in Christ. It's that we would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're saved according to God's foreknowledge in the sanctification of the consecration of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, uh, in real history, real time, and real place, takes this love of God, this work that Jesus would do, and applies it to the lives of believers. He quickens us. He regenerates us. He makes us able and willing and ready and desirous to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. God sets us apart that we would believe in Jesus, that we would be consecrated unto him. Consecrated for what? For obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. We're set apart so that we can obey the call of the gospel to repent and believe in Jesus. We're set apart to obey, to live lives of obedience, loving God's law and following after it. We're set apart for sprinkling in Jesus Christ that we would, by his life, death, and resurrection, through his shed blood, that our sins would be atoned for, that we would be forgiven of all of our unrighteousness, of all of our misdeeds, and all of our self-righteousness. This work of salvation is the work of the triune God. We're new creations in Christ because of what God has done for us. Now, this last phrase here for obedience to Jesus and sprinkling with his blood uh, is a reference to Exodus 24. God has delivered his people out of Egypt. He's overthrown the gods of Egypt and Pharaoh. He's brought his people through the Red Sea. And now he's brought them up onto Mount Sinai where he's delivered the law. He's given them the Ten Commandments. He's saved them and then showed them what it looks like to be his people. And Moses reads the law to the elders, to the people, and they respond by saying, all this that you have said, we will do. We will obey the Lord. We'll be obedient. And then Moses takes blood from the sacrificed animals and he sprinkles it on the people, consecrating them, setting them apart, showing that they've been atoned for and that they've now been, they've now entered into a covenant with God. They are his treasured possession. They are his people. They're a holy nation, a kingdom of priests set apart for his purpose to declare the excellencies of him who called them out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Salvation is a work of the triune God. God saves a people for himself, for his purposes. He chooses them to be dispersed across the face of the earth to declare the glory of Jesus Christ, to proclaim repentance and faith in him for the forgiveness of sins. 
So Peter begins by reminding us of the salvation we have in Christ, that God has done this mighty work in our lives, and he has a purpose for that. So we can begin by asking this morning, do you know this salvation? Is your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone? But don't we have to bring our good works to God? No, your good works are worthless to merit God's favor for you. What about faith? Isn't that something that we bring to the table? No, faith is also a gracious gift from God. The only thing we bring to Jesus are our sins that crucified him. So we must be gripped with this. Put this on. Set your mind upon this. And then if you do believe this is true, you have to ask yourself, do you live like this is true? Is this the controlling narrative of your life, that God has saved you, that God is at work in the world, that he has purposes for his whole creation, and you get to be a part of it as an elect exile, chosen for God's purposes? So we begin with the salvation that we have in Christ. And second, beginning in verse Three, uh, Peter reminds us that the salvation we have in Christ is already and not yet. And this is a common way that theologians will talk about uh, the salvation of God, the kingdom of God. There are elements of God's work in the world, elements of God's salvation that we experience here and now in this life, real tangible elements and benefits of God's work in our lives. And there are elements that are yet to be experienced that will come as Peter says, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So verse 3 begins with the eulogy, praising God for what we have experienced here and now, for his great mercy that has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection, friends, is the powerful inbreaking, the demonstration of God's power and glory and kingdom in this life. Jesus died and was raised again in glory. And by grace through faith, by God's mercy, he causes us to be born again into the same resurrection power, the same resurrection life. This is language that Jesus used in John chapter 3. You remember uh, a Pharisee, Nicodemus, comes to him wanting to know more about the way of God. And Jesus says to him rather abruptly, Nicodemus, unless you're born again... You can't even see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is like, what? What am I supposed to do? Like, climb back into my mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus says, no, this is a spiritual birth. The spirit blows where he wishes. The spirit will cause you to be born again. Just as Jesus himself in his humanity was born of the spirit, conceived of the Holy Spirit, as we just confessed a few moments ago, so too believers must be born of the spirit. And when we're born again, when the Spirit comes into our lives and regenerates us, the new creation, we become the new creation. We are the foretaste of the newness of everything that God will do. And that leads us to be people of hope. We have hope because we know the end verdict. We know that Jesus has triumphed over Satan and sin and death. That no matter how difficult things are, For believers in this life, we have victory already. He also says we have an inheritance right now that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. 
that God is keeping for us right now, there's an inheritance that we have. Ultimately, in Jesus Christ himself is our great reward. Now, this would have been very important for Peter's audience to hear because many of them, as they're beginning to experience persecution for their faith in Jesus, would have lost their actual inheritance. They would have been cut off from their families, cut off from social ties, cut off from economic means. They would have lost what they had in this world. But they have a greater treasure in the world to come, which enables them to endure. And I think it's worth asking ourselves, as we consider our own faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the inheritance that we have yet to come, would we be willing to follow Jesus Christ in this life if it really cost us? What if it cost you your actual inheritance? What if it cost you your actual financial means? What if it cost you your job or your relationship with your family or whatever power and status that you have that you prize? What if it cost you your stuff or material possessions that we are so obsessed over? What if it cost you all of that? What Peter's saying is it would be worth it to lose all of those things for that which is to come. It would be worth it. I had a great story I wanted to share with you guys about uh, someone who seemed like they had given it all up for Jesus. I have a friend who's a campus minister on a a large uh, southern campus, and he works with international students. And uh, what these guys do is there's all kinds of international folks on the college campus here usually... Um, you know, PhD candidates or students, academic types, they're here to study. And so what campus ministers do is they try to get to know these guys, just wandering around on campus, meeting people, and uh, inviting them into Christian fellowship, and, and perhaps by God's grace, inviting them to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And my friend had met someone who was visiting from uh, Afghanistan. He was a visiting professor of Farsi with all kinds of connections to the pre-Taliban government. He befriended this guy, got to know him very well, invited him into Christian fellowship, uh, invited him into Bible studies, invited him into his home. And over a period of years, uh, this person uh, professed faith in Jesus Christ. And it was so amazing. We were all so excited about this. Like, this is a campus minister's dream come true. Uh, and I remember thinking, this is incredible because this guy's going to go back home to Afghanistan as an elect exile. He's going to be a Christian. He's going to be a missionary in his context. This is so incredible. And so it comes time for this man to go back home and, uh, and he delays. He doesn't want to go back home. He's trying to stay here. And he shares with my friend, he said, you don't realize when I go home and I get off the plane, uh, they're going to ask me two questions. They're going to ask me, did I meet any Christians while I was in the States? And then they're going to ask me, did I become a Christian? And if I become a Christian, they're going to kill. So he delayed as long as he could going back home. And eventually he had to go back home. And this, this was the story as I heard it about 10 years ago. And I had always thought in my mind, what an incredible thing. This man knew what he was going back to. And, and he, was willing, he was willing to do that for Jesus. 
So I called my friend this past week because I said, I'm going to share this story and I want to make sure I get it right. And I wanted to follow up. Do you know what happened to this guy? Do you know for sure what happened to this guy? And he said, yeah, um, he went home and uh, he got off the plane. And when they asked him if he'd met any Christians or if he'd become a Christian, he said, no, he hadn't uh, either one. And then he tried to get back home. He tried to get back to the States. And before he went back home, he had tried uh, to get religious asylum here in America. He said, if I go back home, this is what's going to happen. And can I stay here? And they said, when were you baptized? And he said, I had not been baptized. And they said, well, you have to be baptized because that's how we know you're serious about your faith. If you've been baptized, and he wouldn't be baptized uh, because he knew he wasn't a Christian even at that point. But he was willing to use Jesus. He was willing to use Christianity to stay in the States. He wanted some of these benefits of knowing Jesus Christ, but he didn't really know Jesus Christ. And so he found a way eventually to come back to America. And because of the way he did it, he actually left his family in a terrible situation. Um, And so you see here sort of the opposite example of what I was hoping to share with you guys. Uh, A man who ended up giving up everything. He gave up eternal life for some measure of freedom here in this life. And Peter says, you're going to experience trials in your faith. You will be tested. And the reason you'll be tested is so that the genuineness of your faith can be made known. And so here was a man who, when he was tested, the genuineness of his faith was made known. It was perishable. It was defiled. It was fading. He gave up eternity. And it's interesting that the other gospel writers will actually say that you can rejoice when you experience trials because it shows what your inheritance really is. It makes what is truly yours more precious to you than anything that you have in this life. There's an inheritance that's coming, friends, that is more glorious and more beautiful and more worthwhile than anything that we love in this life, as good as some of those things are. So we have a salvation that's already and not yet. And the best is yet to come. Lastly, we see in verse 10, Peter reminds us about a privileged place that we hold in the history of salvation. Helpful here to remember that scripture is essentially uh, a narrative. It's a story about what God is doing in the world. And there's different chapters in the story and God speaks to his people through different uh, means and different times. And uh, Peter here references that and he references the prophets, those who spoke on God's behalf uh, in old covenant times, prophets who prophesied about the Messiah who would come. And it says here, interestingly, that as they were prophesying about the grace that was to be ours, uh, they inquired, they wanted to know, uh, when is this going to happen? Who is the Messiah that is coming? They inquired diligently. They wanted to know, Lord, when are you going to do this thing that we're waiting for? When are you going to make all the sad things come untrue? And what was revealed to them was not exactly what they wanted, but what was revealed to them is that they were not serving themselves, but they were serving you, that they were giving us God's word so that we can look back and see how trustworthy it is. Now, we also mentioned here the angels. This is interesting. The gospel that we believe that it says the angels long to look into the angels marvel at this incredible thing that God has done for his people in Jesus Christ. 
You remember that when the angels sinned, they weren't spared. But God sent his one and only son to redeem us from the curse of the law so that whoever trusts in him might not perish but have everlasting life. We know the full story. We know about Jesus Christ. We know what he has done for us. We know everything that God has in store for us. What a privilege. What a wonderful thing. And so Peter will continue in the chapters and weeks that follow, uh, showing us more about what it looks like to live as exiles in this place we call home. And in order to live that way, to live like what we believe is true, we've got to put on our Christian big boy pants. We've got to be sober-minded. We have to believe these things in the deepest places of our hearts and live like they're true. So friends, remember, always remember, don't forget what God has done for you in Christ. Remember that there's real, tangible benefits of salvation now. There's joy and there's hope and there's ways that we can express that through mercy and justice and community and worship. And remember what a privilege it is to know the Lord Jesus Christ, to be a part of what he is doing in the world and to share that good news to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for the gospel of grace that you have caused us to be born again, that you've brought us into relationship with yourself through the life and death of your Son and the work of your Holy Spirit. Lord, take these things that are true, the things of Jesus, and work them deep into our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.